Oh man, do I love that bass line. You know where that comes from? That the uh, the original, neither do I. <laughs> I asked a musician friend of mine to send me something cool and that was it. This is it. And hello, hello to those of you new to the show and those of you not so new. Hello to you as well. My name is Rob Orman, and this is the Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, habits, mindsets, tactics, strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. I know you can suck it up. The audience of this podcast, expert at doing that. Doesn't have to be your only tool. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. I am a former emergency physician. I don't know if you can be former. I guess once you are, you always are, but a former practicing emergency physician and now work as a physician coach, helping docs work through burnout, overwhelm, career direction, leadership, workflow, efficiency. You know, if you've lost that love and feeling when it comes to work, if you aren't sure where to take it next or somehow you're kind of stuck in whatever, then coaching might just be for you. You can learn more at our website, roborman.com, and there you can sign up for a free coaching discovery session with me to get clarity on your challenges, your goals, and see if physician coaching is something you'd like to pursue. Check it out, roborman.com. Hey, I want to take a moment to welcome a new member to the stimulus team, Joshua Anderson. Joshua is a med student amongst many other things, who is now helping us out with the show notes and in fact did the show notes for this episode, which you can see in their full splendor on the website. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. Justin is the purveyor of the first 10 EM blog Oh, it's it's absolutely amazing. It is something that during my clinical career, I relied on heavily. And, and now I still read, even though I'm not seeing patients. It's just so good. And I first met Justin at a medical conference where I was hosting a panel discussion and he was in the audience. And I mean, he had so much to contribute. I mean, he was clearly as much or more of an expert than the people on the panel. So I invited him up on stage to join the panel. And then, I mean, he just proceeded in his own unassuming, humble, kind-hearted, yet incredibly incisive way to wow everybody in the room. And since then, I have found Justin to be a rare mix of humility, genius, and kindness. And germane to this episode, he is an expert in the area of bias. He writes a lot on it, blog posts, textbook chapters, etc., And today, the topic is availability bias. Now, availability bias is something that most of us have or do, and it's probably hardwired into our brains. So now the question is, what is it? Here's Justin. The human brain is a mushy mess. It's not well designed for the for the modern world. It's not well designed for like really advanced thinking, right? It's really good at like, oh shit, there might be a tiger in the woods over there. I, I better turn the yeah. other way. Uh, it's not great at navigating modern medicine with all the choices we, ha- we have to make. So I think these biases are something we have to think about. I think we need to start with a big proviso because yeah. one of the big problems is 
There is absolutely no proof, no evidence that thinking or talking about any of these biases improves our practice. Uh, so, so starting there is, is really, really important. We were at best at a, a very early stage of thinking about cognitive uh, biases, but yeah. I still think they're important. So swinging back around, so availability bias in particular, the definition of it is actually really easy. It, and it basically comes down to when you're thinking is based on the ease with which so thoughts kind of come that, to your that, mind. That's fundamentally the ease than, with which a thought comes to, uh, to your mind. And, and in medicine, there's a lot of reasons why that might happen. It might just because it's something that you see more frequently. It might be because you saw something really recently, a, a really rare diagnosis, but you saw it yesterday or it's in the news all the time because it's like monkeypox. Or it might be something with a really strong emotional uh, impact. So it's really staying in the front of your mind, right? Something you got sued for a really bad miss uh, so that it lives in a point of your brain where it has a much bigger role than it really should. It's always at the front of your mind. We'll get back to medicine, I'm sure, but like the examples in real life are just obvious and we talk about them all the time, right? Like everybody knows objectively flying in an airplane, safer than driving a car. But when you're measuring those things up, how many people are still way more afraid of airplanes? Because on the news, everything, all you see, you see the airplane crashes. It's, it's there. So it's an availability bias because if you're trying to picture the two, you could picture a horrible plane crash. It's a little bit harder because we don't advertise them as much. In emergency doctors aside, we don't advertise those, those, those car accidents. So it plays a bigger role. Or whether it's you know shark attacks. You're never going to die of a shark attack. It's not a thing. But if you're thinking about most dangerous animals <laughs> in the world, you, you don't think about the deer, which is what you hit with the car and die, right? You think about the so shark. True. Most dangerous animals. So we, we know about available ability bias we don't just we just don't always label it as such it's interesting you say that about the plane crashes i can remember flying recently this was i probably like my first flight post pandemic start and there was the plane crash in china right when the plane just fell out of the sky and i was on the plane and i'm not i'm not, not afraid of flying and you know turbulence is fine but man i was just getting palpitations because i'd just seen that and a couple days before, had been driving down the highway and there was a, a bad wreck. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I hope everyone was okay from that. That was it. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, that could happen to me. I better get off the, the highway. I, I don't know if that's availability bias per se, but what you said just made me think of that. Yeah, I think maybe that's another thing to say right at the front of an episode like this is that it's not that easy to perfectly label these biases. They, yeah. they all overlap each other so much. Um, so there's another thing called negativity bias, where you're always going to think about bad outcomes more than positive outcomes. That plays huge into availability bias, because if you missed a bad case, if you got sued for something, the negativity bias means that you think about it more, which means that it's in your mind. So availability bias is, is there for you. So it's a intertwined mix of how the fact that our neurons are not a computer. We don't follow perfect <laughs> algorithms. The, the, the brain, it's honestly a mess. It's great. Uh, I don't think that there's any other uh, organism that we know of that has uh, better logic and better thinking as of yet, and we should uh, be grateful for what we have, but it's still a bit of a mess. So getting into medicine, the majority of the audience listening to this is in the medical field. Not everybody, but the majority. So let's speak to that. Where does this show up in medical practice? Probably every single patient. And I can give you some examples where it's good as well as bad. And I, I think we should consider this because actually another thing, we're going to label it bias from the beginning, but 
sometimes it's referred to as availability heuristic, uh, mm. just a way of helping us think. And the only way we can distinguish between the two of those, it's a heuristic if it has a good outcome, it's a bias if it has a bad outcome, and we only know retrospectively. So it's a bit <laughs> of a problem. But but some examples in, in medicine every sing, single day. So everybody knows you have a bad miss, right? Last week, you missed a PE. This week, you're ordering a whole heck of a lot more scans for that, or at least it's at the, at the front of your mind. If you got sued for cauda equina, you're getting some more MRIs next week. And it may not change your practice forever. And this is maybe the complex part to talk about is how much should events like that change your practice? How much should you learn from events? Because if you're never learning, we're in trouble versus how much is it more of a reactionary practice, cover your butt kind of practice. And that can be hard to tease out. Sometimes it's availability bias and sometimes it's just learning something that you, you didn't know. The other example that is most commonly used here, right, in flu season, everybody coming in with a, a shortness of breath and a cough is the flu. We know not, that's not actually true, but you just see in so much flu that it's influenza, influenza, influenza. We definitely saw that early in COVID, right? Everybody coming in with COVID-like symptoms was just diagnosed with COVID, even though there's a uh, broader differential diagnosis. I would posit that example is actually getting a little bit closer to one of the good examples of availability bias. Uh, and we can try to pick this out, but if you diagnose bronchiolitis when there is no RSV circulating, that's not a great diagnosis to make. But if you diagnose it in the middle of bronchiolitis season, you're probably on the right track. So actually, the fact that you're hearing about cases, I've seen some RSV recently, the fact that it's more recent in your mind actually does increase the likelihood that it is RSV or that it is bronchiolitis. So availability bias actually in some ways might just shape your pretest probability to what's actually going on in the world. Uh, so you can sort of start to transition from where it becomes a bias to where it's actually a really useful uh, form of thinking to help shape your, your practice. When you were talking about the negativity bias uh, overlapping with the availability bias, you also said getting sued for, let's say, missing a PE. And then any patient who could possibly have a PE ends up getting a CT test. Although right now there's no contrast. <laughs> <laughs> They'll probably get a VQ scan or something, yep, yep. or an MRI, or the, who knows, which seems like it would be the negative of the availability bias. You're just talking about the positive. That's a true pretest probability in bronchiolitis season that the kid with wheezing and fever and cough, like 99% chance of bronchiolitis, but your personal biased pretest probability is falsified by this availability bias, right? It's like, oh, every patient's got a PE because I ain't missing a PE. What every one of these conversations needs is a much more honest and non, I mean, good M&Ms might do this, but, but non-retrospective scope, either I missed it or, or I didn't. If you're a resident and you missed a PE and you just didn't know the risk factors, this is an episode to learn from it. And the fact that you increased the testing isn't availability bias, it's learning. And hopefully it's longstanding learning. If you're a staff and you had no idea that lupus was a clotting factor and that maybe that should adjust your risk factors up, up or down, and I don't know by, by how much, maybe this is an opportunity for learning rather than availability bias. But in order to judge that, you have to know whether your learning is being appropriately applied. So if I miss a case of PE and there's some risk factor that I had never heard of, and in the next week I see two patients with that risk factor and I send D-dimers, that's appropriate. If I miss mm -hmm. a PE and there was some risk factor that I never heard of, and then the next week I just like, ah, oh, I just don't want to miss PE. And so I just send the test on every single person that that's inappropriate. So 
you still need to have some objective measure on which the practice is judged. And unfortunately, in medicine, we don't always have a true objective measure. But I think that's what you're aiming for is, is to judge whether it's truly a bias or just a, uh, a heuristic or a way of thinking is, is how accurately we can judge the, the practice. And that's in my list of things that we can think about for solutions is, is really trying to recalibrate our, ourselves. Again, we talked about the end. PE is a little bit easier, right? If you don't know whether you're over or under testing for PE, you can go to the well score. You can go to Geneva. You can recalibrate yourself using some objective data and you don't have to do this in, in, in the wild. So if you look at a patient, you're like, I think they have PE and then you do a well score and you're like, oh, actually they have a 0% risk of having a uh, PE. Uh, you know that you're a little bit off. So recalibration is an important thing in medicine uh, that I don't know that we do all that well or regularly just to try to get some objective numbers and, and reset our thinking after bad cases like that. My biggest worry is, is just that sometimes when you're reacting to one possible bias or one type of miss, you can rebound way too far and you just find yourself in a completely different bias. And, and that's not, not great. And <laughs> I actually worry that it's potential that we can make, make things worse. And every time I think about these biases, they often occur on the exact opposite ends of spectrums. Slightly away from availability bias, there's something called base rate neglect which means that you don't think about what the pretest probability is of something before you go searching uh, for it. But then there's something else called the zebra retreat, meaning that you should absolutely go looking after rare conditions. Uh, and they're like literally the exact opposite things. So if you try to solve one, you just get bounced right into the other. I think that happens for a lot of cognitive biases is that if you spend too much time thinking about diagnosis, almost the only way you could possibly go is to test more which in modern medicine is almost never the right right direction, right? Every time we, we talk, you got to think about aortic dissection on every patient. Well, now that you thought about it, what are you going to do? You got to think about meningitis. Well, now that you thought about it, what are you going to do? Yes, there are patients that you can be like, yeah, I thought about it. It's fine. It's nothing. But almost all of that kind of talk tends to lead us in one direction. And we've seen that over the, the decade that I've been in medicine, which is just more and more and more testing. And I'm not sure that's always the right direction. Let's pause for a moment for a few shout outs to our new Patreons, Tyler LeMay. Thank you, Tyler. And let's talk about the phenomenon for which Tyler is named. When you put in eight throws into a suture knot and it starts looking like a friendship bracelet, that is known as Tyler's tie. And also thank you to Shandy Welch, new Patreon, who asked instead of something medical, she would like a drink named after her, which there actually is a drink called the Shandy, but <laughs> you know, you be careful what you wish for on this show. So the drink named after Shandy. Well, when I was a fourth year med student, I was super hungry one night and we had some two day old white rice left over from a previous call night. And we also had cases and cases of vanilla and sure, I don't know, maybe it was Sustacal. I'm not sure, but it was vanilla nutrition supplement. So I was super hungry, had no frontal lobe inhibition. And I thought if I mix these two things, I could make some rice pudding. So I made a concoction of stale leftover rice and a full can of vanilla Ensure, swirled it all together, microwaved it for about a minute or two on the eighth floor of Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. And what came out? Welch's misbegotten rice pudding. Yeah, it was a drink. All right, my friends, if you find value in the stimulus podcast, want to become a supporter, want to have some kind of inane syndrome or thing named after you, you can become a supporter through our Patreon page for which there's a link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation with Justin Morgan Stern, where we left off with base rate neglect and the zebra retreat. Uh 
oh, now Pandora's box is open or the genie's out of the lamp. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what metaphor applies to this, but okay, we have availability bias. We have base rate neglect. We have zebra retreat. Oh, I think that's my favorite named one. And you were talking about rare lethal diagnoses. You're talking about myocarditis. Very hard to diagnose. Very easy to miss. You're talking about aortic dissection can be very hard to diagnose easily, especially when it's a subtle presentation or an atypical presentation, because the pattern's not there. You don't have the typical pattern. And because of how our system works with our M&Ms, with our, not so much in Canada, I think, but here with our medical legal system, that it's on blame, it's on fear. It's like, I cannot miss, I cannot miss. Expectation is that you never miss these subtle presentations of life-threatening disease, where probably, probably, the expectation ought to be that you do miss this because there's a certain number that ought to be missed if we're doing sensible workups, not like the zebra retreat. We will never miss a zebra because, you know, you and I have both worked with zebra hunters and they never miss a zebra. Their length of stays are 12 hours for every patient and they all get the full workup and... I worked with one partner who's actually, I mean, an incredible clinician and we'd get our metrics back and he'd say, oh, I actually, I don't see that LOS meaning length of stay. I see that meaning level of service. Like, ooh, I don't think so. So I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on subtle presentations of life-threatening disease and these different biases, these different expectations. The real problem, if it was just like the stay, it, you know, people may be a little upset at us, but the real problem is, is a good percent of the time. In fact, probably the majority of the time that these physicians actually find a zebra, it's actually just a horse that hasn't paint splattered on it. False positives, false negatives. I, I don't know how far I can take make this metaphor go. Uh, <laughs> but the real harm to patients is the fact that tests just don't work very well at, at extremely low probabilities. And this is the reason we talk, we, you know, we, we rarely talk about these kind of cognitive biases and we rarely talk about these diagnostic dilemmas at the really common things that, that we see because we actually do a pretty good job. But when we see diagnoses that are in the range of like, you know, 20, 30, 40% per, our brain can handle those uh, things. I think one of the big problems that we face in a emergency medicine is we are tasked with identifying very rare things, but there is study after study after study showing that the human brain is atrocious at probabilities and the lower it gets, the worse it is. I probably numbers at either extreme, right? Like every time you see one of those graphics showing the distance between the earth and the, and the sun or the size of the planets, it blows your mind because the scale yeah. of things is insane. The same is, goes for like com comparing a 1% chance to the chance that I'm going to win the lottery. The human brain just can't grasp that difference in probability. But when you're trying to look at a patient and like maybe they have aortic, aortic dissection, but the incidence of aortic dissection is almost at lottery range, making decisions with those kind of low numbers. I mean, just look at our decisions around the lottery. They're, they're not very rational decisions. Uh, so decisions around, around uh, the aortic dissection are going to be hard uh, and we're going to get it wrong a lot. Unfortunately, that doesn't give you an, an answer, right? Because we still need to find aortic dissection. I actually think we should have a pretty low threshold for testing for it because it's a disease that will kill you really quickly if, if we miss it. And I don't know what my exact number is, but man, I'm, I'm happy to scan 25, 50 people with, uh, that are all normal mm. to find one aortic di dissection. 
it's a whole nother topic. Again, one of my favorite topics in medicine is the idea of thresholds. Uh, and so I actually think you can take a lot of these conversation out of this theoretical range and do some really good math and get into the concept. Most of us know about the test threshold because of PE and Jeff Klein's work, where there's a number ar- around which, you know, for PE, 2% is what people have come up with. And if you're above 2%, the benefits of doing the test are going to outweigh any harms of doing the test. If you're below 2%, you're, you actually are going to be harmed by the test. How many other conditions have you heard about the test threshold for? I've seen a publication around subarachnoid hemorrhage. I haven't seen it for, for anything else. But if we had those conversations, if I knew that there's even a 1% chance of you having an aortic dissection, it's a good idea for me to scan. I, again, I think it's back to this calibration idea. If we did some numbers, if we had some math people, I would be able to calibrate myself to know what an appropriate level is. Right now, honestly, my aortic uh, dissection uh, approach is is pretty blind. I don't know whether I'm overdoing it or underdoing it or yeah. uh, right on the money. I, I have no idea. Okay. I want to talk about availability bias yeah. Yeah. For, for aortic <laughs> dissection, but I want to go back in time. I want to go back in time. Were you, were you a Monty yeah, Python sound fan? effects like doodly doodly? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll put it. I'll put in something. I'll, uh, I'll, I, I I am not old enough to know a lot of Monty Python. I know about the machine that goes bing. So in Monty Python, there was a uh, Roman nobleman named Biggest Dickus. Biggest Dickus. I don't know where we're going, but I'm on board. Okay. <laughs> so Biggest Dickus. That was that was his, his name, and I worked with a doc whose one of his nicknames was Biggest Dickus. It was actually not because he was uh, <laughs> the way he acted. It was just similar to his name. It was, I think, just a nickname that I gave him. We were friends. So Biggest missed an aortic dissection, and the patient had a negative outcome. And then there was a, a consultant who then said to the family. Can you believe that this idiot, biggest dickus, could possibly miss this? I mean, can we just pause there? Never sell out your colleagues. Come on, never thinking in your head. Just don't say that out loud. Come on, right, right. I mean, this was somebody who had some behavioral issues. This particular consultant. So biggest was tortured by this. This case went on for years, and I think biggest after that had some availability bias for working up aortic dissection. And guess what? We all had availability bias <laughs> because we're like, oh my gosh, Biggest was very careful. Wasn't cutting corners. Solid. Missed it. And so the number for personally, the number of CT aortograms in my practice for years went up. I diagnosed one aortic dissection in that time. And it was a 25-year-old guy who came in with tearing anterior chest pain, radiating to the back and hypotensive and loss of pulse in one arm. I walked into the room and I started sweating. And I said, holy smokes, this guy's got an aortic dissection. I mean, I called cardiothoracic surgery before the guy even went to get like a portable (laughs) x-ray. And that was it. That was the only one. So we know that this happens. I was aware that the availability bias, I didn't even know what it was called, was happening with me from Biggest. How do I avoid that? Yeah. So that that is the billion dollar uh, question, isn't it? And I, I honestly think some of the worst practice that I've seen in medicine is in really conscientious, caring doctors 
who are in exactly that situation. It was the one miss earlier in their career where every patient's got to get test tested for that specific condition, no matter what it goes. And as you say, it actually does seem to have a, a little bit of a halo effect around you. It can affect others yeah. in your practice. It's, it's, it's a bigger picture on who organizes our conferences, but who is passionate enough to uh, give a talk on any given topic. It's often the person who has that miss. And it's it, it often it's the person who's really, really pushing us to to never miss it. Unfortunately, this is a really, really hard uh, question to answer, and I, I think there's two aspects to it. And I think the first really important thing is to recognize potentially that you are operating under potentially faulty thinking. If we can identify that, then we can potentially do some, something about it. And then there's a, a larger part two to this, which in medicine, we need to find ways to be much more objective in our testing. Um, in our diagnostics. One of my favorite talks that I give relatively regularly is, is called Mastering Diagnosis. It's a talk about Bayes' theory, and it's a talk about how we need to know a pretest probability and how our tests have likelihood ratios. And then we get to those idea of test thresholds. And if you test in people who are beyond the thresholds, either at the top end, they are high enough risk that you should just treat them for the disease or at the low end where that they're low enough risk, actually our tests do harm. It's actually not hard math, but it's just not something we talk about a lot. I think we need to be much, much better at Everybody knows it for PE. Everybody knows that 2% uh, cutoff, but name any other condition where you know the threshold for which you're supposed to be testing and not supposed to be testing. And not just, they often ask doctors, you know, what's, what, how comfortable are you with missing MI? And they come up with a random number, but that's, yeah. that's not a actually calculated thing. Like how often do you really know where the harms outweigh the benefits uh, of your tests? Mm. And I would posit it's almost never. And when you actually start looking into it, it's, it's sort of scary for our practice. So I know Chris Carpenter is a great EBM guru. He did a systematic review on subarachnoid hemorrhage, and he found the range at which we should be doing lumbar punctures after a CT, no matter what the time, and the range was between 2 and 4%. So if you were less than 2%, the lumbar puncture was going to do more harm than good. If you're higher than 4%, you should actually have a CT uh, PA, but you shouldn't get a lumbar puncture. Think about how few patients would fall, has a, a, an exact probability of subarachnoid hemorrhage between 2 and 4%. It's essentially, it's essentially nobody. It eliminates lum, uh, lumbar puncture. And if you do that math, I think you find that a lot of the tests that we just think of as routine do not fall into a, a window that we should be doing them. We don't do a great job being really objective with our tests. We, we sort of gut it a lot of the way and we don't get into the math as a prerequisite before we can even talk about the, the stuff that I know that you, you want to talk about because it's interesting. The, the, the mind hacks, the way that we can work around some of these things, the mindfulness, uh, you really have to have a system that you can fall back on. You got to have a good diagnostic system before you can even get to thinking about your thinking and metacognition. <laughs> okay. I actually, I didn't even know what I wanted to talk about. I just knew I wanted to talk about this topic. So there was a paper, actually, this paper was in your blog post and it was titled, let me pull it up here, uh, The Influence of the Availability Heuristic on Physicians in the Emergency Department. And they looked at docs who had diagnosed a pulmonary embolism and they looked at the rate of testing for it before they made that diagnosis, that 10 days before, I don't know, it was like, it was not that long period before they made diagnosis and then 10 days after the diagnosis. And there was a 15% relative increase in PE testing compared to baseline. So, I mean, this is retrospective data. Great. But it just gives weight to the effect of this, right? So, you know, in your group that this is going to happen. You know, in the trainees who come through your department that this is going to happen, that they diagnose a PE, 
well, at least that there's a chance that in the next 10 days, at least, that's when it was studied, next 10 days, actually, it was actually, it, the, it returned to baseline. It returned to baseline after 10 days, right? That was an availability bias. Yeah. So I think that's a really, it. really in, in, important thing because if you increased your testing and it stayed increased forever, that actually could represent teaching. It yeah. went up for just 10 <laughs> days and then it returned to baseline. Now, I still don't know whether the higher level or the lower level was technically correct. So that, that's the biggest limitation of, of this study. But either way, one of those levels is correct and it, it is incorrect to have your testing skewed just for 10 days, just because you happen to see a diagnosis. And I think the other thing to really emphasize, we talked a lot about missing diagnoses. This is not a missed case. This is not a bad outcome that they had in this case. This was literally yeah. just, they made the diagnosis. So this would apply to basically everything that we see. You make a diagnosis of appendicitis and in the next 10 days, you might be looking more for appendicitis. It doesn't matter. They only made the diagnosis and that was enough to bring it to the front of their minds and increase the number of D-dimers they sent, the number of CTPAs they ordered over the, the next uh, 10 days. And the fact that it was transitory, I think tells us that it, it has to be an incorrect increase in testing. There's no way that your individual practice should vary uh, over time just randomly based on what you diagnosed uh, that, that day. So something is wrong with, the, with this picture. I think that's the clear outcome from this study. There's all sorts of other questions that will, that will remain about exactly where they should have been, but you should not have variability in your practice based just on what diagnosis you happen to make on any, any given day. I think we can all agree to that. Okay. Your partner has just diagnosed a PE. And it turns out that your partners are super receptive to your advice, <laughs> okay? Or let's say it's you and you are going to have an inner dialogue, whatever. You've just diagnosed this. Knowing what you know here, that this availability bias is real, it's documented, at least by this study, how would you advise yourself? I'll give the proviso that I gave at the beginning again. There is absolutely no evidence that any, any things that we've come up with work and they're all sort of theoretical. So th there's a list of things that I have in my toolbox, completely unproven, that I, I think about when I'm thinking about cognitive errors and when I'm talking to students or, or residents. And if I think the very first step before you can even get into thinking about solutions is you have to be able to identify when you're making decisions, essentially, because a lot of our working day, we're working on autopilot, right? You're just, you're just going through the, through the, the motions. And so you need to be able to identify the moments in time when you need to pause and, and think a little bit harder. And this is just in general, not just in your scenario. Uh, it's one of the hardest problems with this whole, people talk about this system one, system two. I think you must've talked about that before. We don't have to identify it, but how do you kick yourself from system one to system two? It's all well and good to think that one might be better than the other, but how do you stop yourself? And the only solution that I've come up with is mindfulness, not in the moment, but it's something you're, you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to train yourself to be mindful of, of your thoughts, mindful of the, the moments. And I, I think the only way you're ever going to be able to identify moments when you're acting on uh, autopilot is to be in the habit of monitoring your thoughts, monitoring your practice. So this is actually one of the big reasons, uh, aside from everything else that I know that, that you've talked about in the past, that I practice my mindfulness mm. is that I, I think it lets me monitor my thoughts on, on shift and let me identify times when you need to stop, you need to slow down, you, you need to take a, a step back. I don't know that you need to get to the mindfulness level to, to identify. So the other thing that I think is super important, every doc in the world should be using as a, on a regular basis are cognitive stop points. 
there, there are points where you force yourself to slow down and, and think. I'm mostly talking about them in a resuscitation setting. You're going and you're going and you're going and it, it, it steps and you just do the normal things that you always do. It's not a problem. Uh, that automatic thinking is really good. It's really good at getting things going quickly, but you got to step back at some point and do a broader differential diagnosis. And so in my mind, I have two cognitive stop points. There's what I would call the intuitive cognitive stop points. And that's when things just aren't going as you would expect them. And I think you've talked, must have talked about this kind of thing before, maybe not labeled it. So you're doing your uh, sepsis, you've given the fluid bolus, you've given the norepi, and their blood pressure hasn't bumped yet. That's a four-line problem because 95% of the time, their blood pressure is now, their map's up to 65, they're, they're doing well. So the, the, when I say intuitive stop point, it's like this case is not going like all the other cases I've seen. Now's the time to stop. And I use a combination. I think Scott Weingarten or uh, Bud Salras, I ha, have put out things, but things I need to think about at that point, things like calcium, things about like this, should I be giving steroids? You know, Am I missing some trauma? Am I missing an occult GI bleed? But the point is I was watching the patient and intuitively, it just didn't match my expectations for the way they were going to progress. So I, that is a force for me. I got to stop. I got to think about this. So that's the intuitive cognitive stop point. And then I, I also uh, preach forced cognitive stop points, which is whenever there's a natural time-based event in the case. So before I'm going to put a patient in, a, in an ambulance to send downtown from my community hospital, before we're going to get in an elevator to go up to the ICU, before we go to the CT scan, that's a natural lull in a resuscitation time-based, that's a good time to take 60 seconds and just review everything in, in your head and make sure you did some of that system to slow thinking. You have to identify the moments where you're going to slow down and think. You're lost if you're stuck on autopilot. So uh, th th that's a long-winded way of saying first step, absolute first step is get yourself off autopilot and you're going to have to find a way to do that. And those are my two techniques. Well, I think that we have... I think we have dug in. I think we've dug in and we've come out on the other side of the earth. <laughs> going to, is, are, is there anything that we're incomplete on with this conversation? I, I think not. I, I think if you're really interested, there's there's a lot of people who have talked a lot about these cognitive biases. And and once you've identified that your your thinking may be derailed, th there's things that you should probably routinely do. You know, people will tell you to always ask what yourself what you could be missing. Make sure you always have differential di diagnosis in mind. Again, I don't think these cognitive biases are always a a bad thing, right? If I walk into a room and I see a patient with pinpoint pupils and the respirates for I don't need to think about a broad differential diagnosis. I know exactly what's going on with that, that patient. And technically that's biased thinking, right? I've cling clanged, I see the diagnosis and I go. It becomes a bias if I've given three doses of Narcan and the patient's not changing and I just get stuck in my thinking. And I know this is an opioid, I'm just gonna keep going down that path. But until that point, it was just a good heuristic. It was just a good way to, to manage me medicine. So I think we gotta be careful and just acknowledge that there's a spectrum here where we can actually use these things to our advantage. Actually, let me expand on that for a second. This is like M&Ms, actually. We get so focused on the bad outcomes in medicine. This is just coming to my mind now, so it, it may be a little scattered in the thinking, but let's, let's focus on the good things. So we know the brain is wired poorly for the, the modern world. That's where these, all these biases are. Instead of getting so worried about the misses, uh, get, getting so worried about finding ways to deal with the aortic dissection when we're not thinking about it, let's, let's think about how we can hack that system and use it to our advantage. So availability bias tells us that we are more likely to think about the things that come to our mind easily. There are things that I need to think about. How many times have I run a resuscitation on an altered patient and forgot about the sugar? Like a billion times. Everybody's there. So if I know I need to think about it, and I know personally that is one of my personal mistakes, availability bias tells me if it's in front of my eyes every single day, I'm not going to miss it. So if I put it on you know, one of these reminder apps to send me an email to say, hey, sugar, check the sugar, idiot. 
Or what I actually do, I, I never manage an altered mental status patient without at least some point in the case pulling out a checklist. Is that AEIOU tips? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through it and I put it in front of my eyes. So I can hack my brain knowing that if it's in front of my eyes, I'm going to think about it. That's a way of using these kind of biases, using the availability bias to our advantage and maybe translating it from bias into, into heuristic. So I think the bigger picture is for any one of these biases, if you know your brain is not wired to be like a computer, the question you really need to be asking yourself is how do we use that to our advantage rather than to our disadvantage? Oh my gosh, you just made the bug a feature, baby. <laughs> That's well what we're done. going for. All right. Well done. Oh, Justin, such a delight. If people want to find you, where do they find you on your website, social yeah, media? All centered around first10em.com. Uh, if you come to the website, that'll, that'll be Twitter, that'll be Facebook, all of it's first10em. And that's ten. That's the the number ten, 10. EM. Yeah, appreciate it. There's not that many Justin Morgensterns in the world as well. There, there is one baseball coach or scout from the minor league. So I'm, I'm not that guy. Otherwise, it's, it's me. Come, come find me. <laughs> All right, Justin. Thanks so much. Cheers. It was a pleasure talking to you, man. And that's it for today. If you want to learn more about one-on-one coaching, sign up for a free coaching discovery session. I'll find all kinds of goodies. It's all at our website, roborman.com. And until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.